Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cyclic community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. A broken foot turned Paul Skilbeck's life upside down. From cross-country ski to mountain bike racing and the start of his journalism career. He pioneered journalism at the Grandic Mountain Bike World Cup races in the 90s, bringing professional structure and process to the events. For 10 years, he reported from over 100 World Cup races and was press officer at two World Championship races. We talk about how he hacked phone lines to get his stories out. He shares crazy stories about John Tomek, Thomas Frischknecht and Mike Kluge. He admits the abuse of sharks for better Olympic PR in Sydney and explains why he was an influencer before Instagram. For his dream to grow the mountain bike sport, he pushed new ideas and always followed his own path, not afraid of change. He gathered a vast amount of experience starting a magazine, founding an international mountain bike press association, working for Velo News, the UCI, and becoming communication director for Sea Otter Classics. His stories go deep and will touch everybody who has a heart for the sport. Oh, and Paul has many more stories to tell, from his time as marketing and communication director for the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, Levi Leipheimer's Grand Fondo, and the Race Across America. Stay tuned. We plan to cover his insights in a second episode. Enjoy the ride. Hey, Paul. Great having you on the show. Long time no talk. How are you? Hey, Dirk. I'm good. Yeah, it's good to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, um... So before we start, uh, I guess you're in a room with the window, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes. So if you look out of your window, what what do you see? Um, I see this well, the street that I live on. I see trees, and I see some. Uh, I see people, students riding past on bicycles, uh, which is always which is always a pleasure. It reminds me I'm in Berkeley and I'm near a university which is a good place for me. Nice. So, Paul, um, in the 90s, pretty much exactly from uh, 1989 to 98, you've been traveling around the world to over 100 World Cup races as a journalist. Which of the races do you still remember? That's a good question. Um, um, I Well... I think there's I remember some races for different reasons and some of the races I recall for just amazing competition um other race like like for example um the race in in Mount Snow in Vermont I think it was maybe 1994 when um it was so hot and humid and the course was so difficult And I think Tim Gould won the race, um, or else he was, or else he finished really close to the to the to first place. And 
at the end of it, he kind of collapsed and he had heat exhaustion. And um, it was lucky that his, his girlfriend was a nurse and she recognized the symptoms because otherwise it could have been a really serious medical condition for him. Um, and, and who, who was that? That was, that was the British racer, Tim Gould. Ah, oh, yeah, Tim, right. Yeah, yeah. And other races I remember um, also for great competition, but also I think that, you know, if there's one organizer who really stands out, it would have to be the guys in, in Quebec, um, Jestev, um, Patrice Truin and, and Chantal Lachance are the people who lead that organization. But it's, but the strength of the organization really is in the, in the very large, um, committed volunteer group they have that support the event. You know, just lots of really talented people who, you know, who sort of donate their time to making these, these events with, with, um, just a really great fun scene parties, but it's not only the party. They had a famous party every year, but it's not only that it was just the energy around the event, which was exceptional. Um, you know, it's, I, I can go on, Dirk. I'm very just, I have so, so many great memories. No, but, but the party, well, let's stay with the parties. There, there's always parties at, at events. So, uh, so Quebec had the best parties. Well, yeah, you see, the thing is that, that the people who organized, um, um, the events at, at Mont Saint Anne, they came from the hotel hospitality industry. Um, and so they're event organizers within, within the hotel industry and they're professionals. And they, they had a, each year they had a different theme for the party. And so you never, you never knew quite what you're going to get. And it was always, it was always a lot of fun. I think the most famous one was when they got all of the, all of the top guys, um, you know, people like Thomas Frischknecht and, and Dave Weens and, um, you know, I think um, Zadrobilek was up there as well. And they were all dressed in drag. They got tricked. They thought that they were going to be judges in a beauty contest. And they went into this, you know, like, so they were all, like, they thought the beauty contest was going to be the female athletes. And they're going to get to see all the female races in, in you know, like bathing suits and stuff like that. And um, so they went into the into a into a room to get a pre-event briefing, and there are all these um, these bathing costumes, bikinis, and so on, hung up on clothes hangers in the in this room. And the guys are looking around, and then uh, Chantal walks into the room, and she said, "Okay, guys, there are your outfits." And you know <laughs> they're sort of looking at each other like, "What?" And she said, "Yeah, you're the beauty contest," and. Um, you know, they went along with it. They did it. They went along. They, they had a so they had a drag beauty contest, and everybody laughed at them for a, a solid hour or so, maybe more. Um, and it was it was really really funny. There was a that, but there was a, there was a funny there was a funny sidebar to that story because um, some of the some of the female members of the of the World Cup scene, um, athletes and and managers. Um, you know, had boycotted this event because they thought it was a, they thought it was going to be this big, like you know, sort of chauvinistic Donald Trump kind of thing, and um, you know, and so they they decided they weren't going to show up, but they waited at the bottom. This this event took place in a restaurant at the top of the mountain, and um, but these the women were waiting at the bottom of the chairlift, um, and they were naked. And and who who won that who won that competition then? Do you remember? Who was the, the beauty? Dave Wins. Queen? Dave Wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so they all came down off the mountain in the cable car, and all of these women, like, they'd stripped naked, and they were waiting for them there, saying, hey, you know, 
aren't, aren't we beautiful enough? <laughs> okay. You know, are still still parties going on this this time of the of the racing? Is that still part of it? I don't think so. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. It's um, yeah. I, I I think that the my understanding is that. Um, you know, is that the culture has changed and it's become very much more, very much more serious. Um, um, you know, to be honest, I, I was like mountain bike racing was my life for several years until the end of the 1990s. And then, um, and then I stopped, I stopped going to the big races and I haven't been to, um, I don't think I've been to any world cup races since, um, really since about, um, I was involved. Oh gosh, since I became a press officer, um, you know, which was which is around about the turn of the century. So then let's go back. Um, how did you get into becoming a journalist for the for the Grundig UCI? That's a long story. Are you ready for it? Well, then, yeah, maybe <laughs> a short version, but you know. Okay. Well, I had a so I had a week that I had a week that changed my life, um, and. In this week, I, I broke off my engagement with my fiance, and I had a house painting accident and fell off a ladder and broke bones in my foot. And um, the upshot of like at that point, I I was training to be a cross country ski racer, and I was working as a sports instructor in London. And at that point, I thought my my life was over. It was a, a very dark, very dark few days. Um, I went to I left London and uh because I needed some time to think about things I went to stay with my sister who lived in a in a big squat in Amsterdam and one of the guys there worked as a cycle messenger in London and he he suggested that to stay fit I could just get a job as a cycle messenger um stay fit earn money and so I did that and um two things happened um because it turned out that was a really, really good move for me. It was a, the London cycle messenger scene in 1988 was just fantastic. People from all over the world were coming there and being a cycle messenger while they sort of reloaded their bank accounts on their on their world tour, and um, they all had interesting stories to tell. I wanted to make a record of it for personal reasons, so I started this um, with two other guys. We started this fanzine called Moving Target. And moving targets. So a magazine. Yeah, yeah, magazine. Yeah, d- magazine. yeah, little okay. A5 format magazine. Um, you know, printed in black and white. Um, and that became a thing. Um, you know, because because like in the in '88, being a cycle messenger was a really trendy thing to do. Um, and yeah. um, you know, and the economy was really hot back then. Um, certainly in the UK, anyway. And um, you know, things were just booming and. I started to get contacted by um, by cycling magazines asking to write articles for them, um, you know, and so that sort of brought me into journalism. And at about the same time, we had a uh, we had a race for the me- for the cycle messengers, and I I happened to win it. Um, not like the top guys weren't necessarily there. They there was one guy in particular, Paul Hinton, who was uh, that weekend. He was off competing in a like in a like pro level mountain bike race in the UK. And he heard that I'd won the messenger race, and so he came to me on the street and said, "Hey, you know, why don't you, why don't you try out with with my team, which is the Fisher UK team?" And um, so I did that. I got a sponsorship 
to race um, and with that team. And, um, you know, so I started going to the, like to the big races, like the top races in the UK. And at that time, the, like the big international race came to London. That was, it was called, then called the Grundig Challenge. And I competed right. that event. And then um, I went to, I went to more of the Grundig Challenge events uh, in continental Europe and uh, quickly realized that I wasn't going to get on the podium. I'm, I'm really too big to be a mountain bike racer. I'm, you know, I'm good. So you, you were racing then against uh, Frischi and Tomek and... So Frischi wasn't allowed to race on the on the World Cup circuit back then. Um, he wanted to, but oh, he, he wasn't. wasn't. Yeah, you know, those the Swiss riders were were uh, bound by by different rules, and they were threatened with a, with with uh, like big fines if they competed in the Grundig events. But Mike Mike Kluger was there. Um, uh, you know, Mike Closer, who was then the world champion, he was there. Um, and we had the British riders Gould and Baker. They were sort of like top ride. They were winning those races. You had people like Volker Krukenbaum and, and Jürgen Spreek. All these guys were, um, you know, uh, you know Bruno Darzier. A lot of so a lot of people who had come from the cyclocross world into into mountain bike racing. Then and, and so the races were really fast. Or like, you know, like top top cross races were there. And, and how long how long were they? And timing, you remember? Ooh, sometimes like two and a half to three hours. They were they were longer wow. races then. Um, but yeah, and I'm you know I was I was too big to to ever think about getting on the podium. Um, too slow on the climbs, and um, you know, so I decided I was going to focus on the journalism because at that time, at that time, nobody was writing much about these races in the magazines and they were so so much fun and it was such a such a vibrant world i thought i've you know i've got to i've got to tell people about this it's fantastic and so i um i sent i i contacted several uh cycling magazines and offered them stories and everybody accepted and so i just became more of a more of a uh of a writer uh, than a rider in the first year in 19 first year i was doing it seriously 1990 I was competing in the races, and then in the evening I would I would write a story, and which kind of worked out quite well because um, being a competitor in a race, you know you you know a lot more, you have a lot more insight, you know, into the into the cut and thrust of the racing than than you do just standing on the sidelines, and I think that helped to sort of get my early reputation, but also it helped to shape the style of, of story that I wrote because I always used to. Um, to like, I like to write from the point of view of the riders, like trying to trying to get inside the head of the rider during the race and explain what that rider was thinking when at particular points when tactical decisions right. were made. And then, who were the riders you, you you got the best insights out of at that time? Um, you know, I Mike Kluger was probably my favorite my favorite rider to to write about because. A lot of crazy things happened to him in the race, and and he was very open about he was very open like, like about what, what was, was crazy. Night. What was crazy? Yeah. Um, craziest thing was um, it was a race in in Cannes or close to Cannes in in two, in nineteen ninety, and he was leading that race, and um, uh, the race went round the harbour side, and uh, and. Um, he slid out going around one of the corners and um, he actually went into the water. There was a, like a, a one meter drop into the water and um, 
Yeah, you know, yeah. So on Kluger was like he was racing, he was leading the race one minute, and then you know seconds later he was down there in the water with his bike. His bike was sinking, and he had to he had to he had to swim underneath the water to get his to get to to pull his bike back up. Um, and then spectators standing on the side of the, on the side of the harbor were kind of just watching him. So he had to ask them. He shouted, "Hey, you know." get me out of here, help me. So they, because, you know, like it's a one meter wall, you can't just pull yourself out. So they, they helped him out with his bike. He got back on his bike and he continued the race. Um, he actually ended up finishing third, which is, which go, goes to show what an amazing strong rider he is. But that kind of stuff happened to Kluger. Um, just a lot of, a lot of things happened to Kluger in races. He had, um, you know, he had bad luck or, or whatever it was, but it was always, it was always a really good story with him. And yeah, and he loved to talk about it. That was, that was, that was the great thing. I, you know, I had a, I had a great relationship with, with Thomas Frischknecht as well. I really liked him. He was, um, and he and I did not get on well at all. And, um, but there was a kind of a, there was a kind of a, like a lot of friction between us and, um, you know, and the, I don't know if you can call it like a mutual attraction, but I think that there was some there was some mutual respect anyway. Um, and you know, because I wrote some things that he definitely didn't like. And uh, here we go. But he, but he didn't like. He never blanked me. He never stopped talking. Like he'd come and complain to me, and you know, and so we'd have a discussion about that. And you know, so we always we always kept we always kept talking about things and. You know, in the end, I think it was a very it was a very fruitful relationship. Um, you know, you don't have to uh, you don't have to be everybody's best friend all the time. You know, to have a right. to have a, a like a respectful relationship, and that's that's the way I think it worked with him. Um, so, so when did you stop racing and then go full time journalism? It was during the nineteen ninety season. Uh, okay, and then for. For the reason of journalism, I mean that was the beginning, pioneering, right? Um, no social media, no everything was you know with facts and mail. How how can you explain how did journalism work these days? You know, yeah, it was, really, it was very different. It was much better for the journalists back then, I think, because <laughs> there was there was no there was no really no other source of information. Um, okay, you know, there's I know as Uh, like 1990 the like the internet wasn't really a thing um and so yeah so everybody was relying entirely on their you know on magazines and newspapers for their for their information about what was going on totally different to today and how many how many journalists uh did you take care of at the events i was one of them when we came out to the races but like there was a big big crowd and you were the press officer um, oh well, yeah. I, I so I didn't become the press officer until until uh, year two thousand nineteen ninety nine. It was ninety nine. Oh, that late. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was. Yeah, so I was. I, I was. You know, I was just like a regular journalist until the problem was that like, these these races were a little bit. They were a little bit chaotic. Um, and I don't mean they were poorly organized. I just mean that because, because generally the standard of organization at the mountain bike, uh, world cup races was really high. But the thing was that, um, especially if you like for people who had to file a story on the same day as the race, it wasn't necessarily very easy. Right. And, 
Um, but also, you know, just because of finding the um, finding like just like actually filing the story. In the case of like if you were filing for a newspaper, it wasn't difficult because you just you just make a phone call, and then back then the newspapers they had copy takers, and so you would dictate your story to a copy to a professional okay. copy taker. Um, but if it was a magazine who wanted the story, like like Cycling Weekly, for example, they like it's a weekly magazine. They have really tight deadlines. They needed their story on Sunday night, and they didn't have copy takers, and so you had to provide like you had to fax it to them somehow. And um, a lot of the time, that really wasn't um, it wasn't necessarily all that all that possible. Um, I ended up having to to uh, to plug my computer into a um into the phone line in the press office at these events so the first thing i would do at these events is i'd arrive in the press office i'd go to the phone jacks and i'd i'd unscrew the phone the phone jacks and i'd put the alligator clips on the line to find the to find the two wires like you've got to get the red wire and the green wire and you've got to get them in the right in the right order as well um in order to be able to to use the phone line as a, as a fax line, as like to to send data rather than voice, um, and so that'd be the first thing I'd do. I'd just get a I'd get a connection. But then the other the other issue was was course access. Um, you know, a lot of the times because you know, like you've got single track sections and the and really remote sections which you can only get to by hiking, or you know, or on a bike and. Um, and a lot of the organizers they would um it wasn't necessarily the organizer it was more the it was more the volunteer staff who were doing course marshalling they wouldn't let you under the course like if you're a photographer well you must have felt this i know that i'm all oh, yeah. photographers felt it like you know you couldn't always get to the best places for pictures and it was the same with me with words you know i wanted there were certain places i needed to get to in order to be able to create the full picture of like the most important uh, tactical moments in the race and um so in the end what we did is because i went to the i went to uh the uci technical delegate who was then chris payne and complained to him about this and explained why it would be so much better in terms of the pictures that photographers could get and the and the richness of the stories that we could that we could write if we had better course access and um and chris said you know well look you know paul you're just one journalist you know, why would I listen to you? I need to know that everyone's feeling this. And so I started an organization called the Mountain Bike Press Association. And of course, everybody wanted to join that because we all had the common purpose, um, you know, to make to make course access better and, and press room conditions standard. So we knew what we were working with. Um, so I started that, I think, in about 1995 or 96. Um, and I remained the, 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 the head of that until right through until I... 2000 which is after even after i'd stopped being a journalist um i uh, my first press officer job um was offered to me by the by the people at mont saint anne at the world championships and um that was as a like as a as an assistant press officer and uh they had suzanne roi who was the she was the uh the pr uh head at the mont saint anne uh, ski area and she was just real super pro um really really good at at everything that she does um but she didn't have a great deal of experience of um of media operations at 
a mountain bike event like like finish area protocol you know getting the rider from the finish line um you know into the like uh, sort of through right. through the scrum of photographers into the um into the into the press conference and then from there to the to the podium um and so I, I had some suggestions about that, and and so they asked if I would be the, the assistant press officer. So I worked as the outside guy out in the, out on the course. Um, and Suzanne, you know, she sort of managed the bulk of operations in in the press room, and um, you know, and that was that was a lot of fun, and it was it was good because we, um, you know, we devised a, a system for that which hadn't been used before, and now you see that system at you know. Pretty much every uh, you know every every big World Cup UCI event, um, road, road and off road. And what system was it? Um, it just involves. Um, it's a really tight timeline, and so okay. and so you have to and so you so every all of the athletes and the team managers are aware of what the timeline is, and the journalists also, and. So and then what? So what you do is you stop the rider in in the mountain. This is what we did in 1998. I think there are variations of it by now. So long afterwards, but um, the rider would stop um, would stop very briefly at the um, after crossing the finish line, and so the photographers could all could all get their pictures. The photographers were in you know were were in um, lined up uh, in an right area in a, box. Uh, in a box. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and then straight after that, the top three the top three athletes would go into a, um, into a TV compound, just at like, just at like a, I don't know, like a three meter square, uh, fenced box. And, uh, so the TV, um, like the host TV reporter could be there in that box, uh, to do the, the immediate, very short interview. But it was also big enough that it was big enough, but also small enough that people who wanted to hear that, like, like journalists could, um, like they could stand on the outside of the fence and they could hear everything that was being said. So everybody has access to these words, um, you know, and so, and so you still have the uh, full and open access, like no one's getting privileged information. Um, so it's, it sounds, it sounds really like that you put a lot of structure. Yeah. And yeah. In, into, yeah. Into this uh, turning, um, the story into real action, make it tangible, you know, it was, yeah, yeah. All the challenges. Yes, exactly, exactly. I was trying to make the process a more efficient, but also b um, have the, have the best access to the best quality information, words and pictures. And so the idea was that the information that can, we can present, the very best information, most interesting, most fun, most engaging content. Um, because my my theory was that my hypothesis was that the event, the event in many in some ways. It didn't really take place on site that the event took place in the media um just because like if you like if perception if perception sort of can be reality you know then the perceived the perceived picture of the event by the most people in the world is going to shape what like in the collective um conscious that shapes what the event is All right and so you know so my 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 idea was was to get out you know like a particular picture which was hopefully the most real picture of of what really happened. And was was this your idea or was it a group or how did you guys approach this? Uh, no, that's my idea. I dreamed <laughs> I dreamed it up. <laughs> okay, and and it seemed it seemed like with the, you mentioned it before the, the the team in Quebec was more professional, more open, 
uh, and organized than others. Yeah, they were. Well, you know, what I liked about those, about Patrice and Chantal is, is something that I see in myself as well, which is, you know, as I said that, you know, I just said that I, I dreamed up that idea myself and I, I did, but my guess is that, that it's like a synthesis of a lot of stuff that I learned over the years and, and, um, and people at, at Monsignan were like that as well is that, that they're always looking for like they're information sponges. And so if you go to them with an idea and say, I think you could do this better, like they don't give you any pushback. Like there's no ego, like no fragile ego involved. Like they're just all about doing it better. And, you know, if you talk to them, they, they learned a lot from, um, from their friends in Cirque du Soleil. Um, oh, okay. And, um, you know, like there are always, like if you open your mind to ideas and suggestions, like there are always ways of, of improving anything, um, you know, sort of at any time. And that's, that's sort of part of human history, really. So looking back at that 10 years on the World Cup circuit, uh, um, you from your journalistic side um, with the structure and the processes you put in helped to grow the sport. Um, what other factors, what, what magazines from your view were, were really instrumental in, in spreading these stories? Um, well, I think that, you know, there was um, – the standard of journalism was 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 very high um really really across the board i think that um you know you had you had cycling weekly in the uk which was you know the great thing yeah. about that is it you know it comes out every week um you know and then you had um you know i think that I, the german magazines were, were were all really good you know um You had bike magazine, you had mountain bike, which you worked in mountain bike, right? Right, mountain bike. And right. then right. there was also Carl Gross's magazine, Bike Sport News, um, right. which was very racing yes. focused. And, um, you know, and then uh, and the nice thing about, about the monthly magazines is that they can use pictures bigger, and they did use pictures bigger and better um, than the more frequent magazines, like, like the weeklies. And... Um, You know, and it's and it's really the picture that tells the story. You know, you just convey so much with a with a really good picture. So, um, you know, and I think that and the world's number one magazine at that point was um, was Velo News. That was the magazine that everybody, you know, on people in the UCI, you know, kept on talking about Velo News, and you know, it was available in the UK. It was quite easy to get it on continental Europe. Of course, it was big. You know, it was that, that was the magazine that was really read worldwide. And um, they they hired me in um, uh, after the 1992 World Championships in uh, in Quebec, Bremont. Um, and um, so I, I worked with with Velo News um, until they <laughs> until they fired me. Um, for for working on a um okay. on another magazine which became quite influential which was um that was just a, a season guide like a, a world cup guide that it was called mbg or mountain bike guide um yeah nice piece shiny paper that, glossy yeah yeah exactly that was a you know that was like a showcase for um uh the 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 california organizer rick sutton described it as lightning in a bottle 
um, <laughs> which is typical of Rick to come up with a yeah a very, a very evocative term. Um, yeah, it was you know it was a nice way of it was a nice um, it was a nice branding piece for the for the mountain bike World Cup circuit because you know it was it was full of beautiful pictures. It was on glossy yeah, paper, yeah. and you know and it 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 identified all of all of the teams, all of the race venues um, had you know features on on the big riders. Um, you know, and everything everything that you needed to know about the mountain bike World Cup circuit was included in that magazine every year. Uh, so it was, you know, as far as uh, like like you know, for a sponsorship brochure, you know, you probably couldn't ask for uh, for anything more than that. And for better stage to present your teams and product. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the fans, the fans loved it because it had all of the had the had all of the bios, like the, all of the the athlete data in it. And a list of winners of the, you know, like from every year, from every race. Um, but yeah, but I'm, again, it was it was really the pictures that that people, you know, kept on commenting on. As you know, it was, it was just the, the amazing, the amazing um, visuals of the mountain bike World Cup circuit. So, and you have to remember back then that the sporting landscape was was pretty different to what it is now. You didn't, an outdoor sports was quite were quite different like they're much more like what what's the difference they were darker you know mountain bike brought a huge amount of color um yeah like on two there were there were a couple of things going on and grundig was actually involved in a few of them like you know things like things like like um windsurfing and uh and snowboarding um and mountain biking um uh they they also did freestyle skiing but like these these all had Like these sports were were really the um, lifestyle, like sort of the pre lifestyle sports and the precursors to the extreme sports movement. Like the extremes, mountain biking. I remember in the early nineties was was considered to be an extreme sport. Yes, um, but but you know there was this. Like I used to read letters of complaint about the colors in like in magazines. Um, people would write in talking about the gaudy colors in mountain biking, and you know. And all these this tight fitting lycra clothing because like road cyclists were still wearing wool clothes back then, um, right. and you know and there, there was a lot of there was a lot of backlash, um, and so um, you know and I kind of I kind of lost my point there, but but it was you know it was it was based on um, you know on 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 mountain biking bringing this um, yeah, this fresh lifestyle and you know like into this, this, and, uh, fresh fresh lifestyle and energy and color and um you know and this was all this was all encapsulated in something you know in in the in the photographs that's what i was coming to you know from the events and so these these photographs then were much more i think they had a much greater impact back then than they do now um you know because people have become accustomed to it um you know it's, it's not it's not a new thing anymore it's something which you know people accept or they aren't um, you know, so they're, they're sort of looking, people are looking for, like, we're always looking to something new to have a big impact on us, to make, to give us like a, a wow value or, you know, I haven't seen that before. Amazing. Um, I mean, to your point, you know, you, you remember uh, Ulis Danzio, right, who's been the publisher of Bike Magazine, uh, took exactly that wave. You know, he, he had uh, started a, a magazine with surfing, then uh, with, with snowboarding and then mountain bike, you know, to yeah. bring this new lifestyle. I, yeah, yeah, exactly, and you could see that you could see that very much in the design of of Bike Magazine. He was, 
um, you know, I, I think that he was he was really the leader. I think in that style because he he did that more than any other magazine I saw. Yeah. Um, you know, including including the UK, and I think like the two, in my opinion, the two the two leading um, magazine publishers um, in the world are UK and Germany. And they have dif- distinctive styles, but I think that in terms, if you're looking for the top quality magazines, those are the two countries you go to. Um, and uh, yeah, and Stanchu was really in the mountain biking. I think that he was, uh, you know, he was somebody who everybody could learn from. Yeah. Definitely, I did a lot. I, you know, you know, I'm saying I'm saying that from the perspective of somebody who's a professional working in the field. Um, you know, like for the customers, he was like for the audience, he was just like you know, his magazines were just yes. fun to read, really enjoyable, clear. Um, you know, and on, on clear, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so thinking back, you know, like um, some magazines we talked about, like so, um, what what brands come to your mind that that helped shape the the mountain bike growth in the '90s through racing? That's an interesting question because you had um, U.S. brands right. and also European brands, and um, you know, it's it's. I would I would say that there was um, that both contributed really, in my opinion, in, in an equal amount. Um, you know, I think that um, and Scott Europe did a huge amount um, in in. You know, in promoting the image of mountain biking, they were a, a big sponsor of the, um, you know, of the Grundig series. It's, you know, it's funny talking to people. Um, in as I live in the in the USA now, um, and it's funny the difference I have talking to people in in North America compared to talking to people in in Europe, and the perception in north america really is that mountain biking was was very much a, more, a north american thing um people in europe tend to see mountain biking as something that started in in north america but very very quickly um became a global phenomenon right. and um you know and in terms of in terms of branding um you know i would i would have to agree but um you know i'm i'm very certain is this still the case or it was in the past um, People still in the US think that that it. Well, well, I'm, well. I'm right now, the biggest brand in mountain biking is Red Bull, you know, which is a, which is an Austrian brand. You know, they're they're the, um, you know, their name is like if there's one name who you would associate with mountain biking right now, it would have to be Red because like you see their banners all over the all over the biggest events. Um, you know, yeah. So, but in terms of you know, in terms of 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 equipment like bicycles mainly you know um and the u.s names are huge back then you know and gary fisher well it was back then it was just fisher um you know and you had you had gt which which came along a little bit later um you know diamondback was was a was a really big uh the companies who who were sponsoring the big teams um and certainly those were those the only um, European brand, I would say that that really competed with those on the same level would have been. Uh, gosh, I might make a mistake here in saying the only one, but Scott was certainly the biggest of the uh, of the European team. And the Peugeot team, um, you know, that was that was a that was quite strong, but it didn't really have the same impact. I would say it wasn't quite on the same level, and they they had a great racing team. Um, and you can say the same like the rally team. 
um, the UK rally team. And the rally thing was a bit confusing because it's you know it's it's sort of two different companies effectively. You got the Europe, you got the UK team, which is where it started, but then you got the US team, um, you know, which I which I guess was the parent company. Um, like they bought they bought um, TI Tubing International. Funny story. Funny story about about rally about the rally UK. Um, like the guy who the guy who ran rally um, was actually called God, okay. and he designed, and, uh, his, uh, which is actually it's it's an it's an acronym, isn't it? His initial his name his name was Gerald O'Donovan, um, so his initials are G O D. But he was a he was a material scientist, and um, really really interesting, cool cranky guy, who um, was. Like he, he was like just a passionate bike racer. He, um, like he 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 developed us he developed the Reynolds seven five three tubing, the lightweight heat heat treated tubing, and he sponsored the um like the rally pro racing team from the nineteen eighties, which was run by the Dutch guy Peter Post and and riders like like Jerry Knetemann and uh, so on and so forth. So you know he had a long history in um uh, but yeah yeah that was God. <laughs> So, so God designed mountain bikes. <laughs> yes. That's a good story. Yes. <laughs> hey, coming back to the to racing. So, like you know, we spoke about uh, brands now, uh, uh, magazines. Uh, what athletes uh, from your view were key to to bring mountain bike to the next level? Yeah, I think that some of so that's that's it's a really interesting question because the the athletes who I think were the most um, you know, you have to look at the athletes who are willing to travel. Um, and like initially, so you've got the first wave and that was people like, people like Jackie Phelan, who was like, you know, she, she crossed the Atlantic to race in Europe, um, you know, in the 1980s. And then, um, you know, there was, there was this Polish guy, Jan, we Jan, Wiak, who went to, race in in usa in the late 1980s an english guy called mike newton who went and lived in usa um like the english pro paul watson he went to race in usa partly because he was not allowed to race in europe anymore but that's a different story um and um you know and then and then um other people like mike closer was probably um you know sort of one of the biggest names um To, to cross the Atlantic from you know from USA and then he won the world championship. Sarah Ballantyne, she did the same, um, and um, you know the biggest name of all back then was was John Tomac. Um, you know he had right. he had the most star power of you know of of any athlete. Um, just on the way he and, and why do you think that that was the case? Why was he the the superstar from your view? There are a couple of things, like one of them, like the most the most immediately accessible um, thing about Tomac was the way he looked on a bike. You know, if anybody was if anybody was born physiologically to be on a bike, it was Tomac. He just looked right. Um, you know, he he looked like he was part of the bike. It was just you know pretty incredible. Like so many pictures of Tomac in in a sort of perfect um, position and balance on the bike. Um, And, but also he had, 
he had an unorthodox, like he had better skills than most of the other cross country racers. And, um, um, I'll tell you a story about Tomac from, from, um, the 1991 world championships in Italy in, in Il Choco. Yeah. Il Choco. Cause I yeah. thought I was going to see, we, we were driving. He hadn't won the cross country. He hadn't won the downhill race. He won the cross country the day before. And he thought the next day he was going to win the downhill, but he got second. And he was just so full of frustration uh, over that result. And um, and we were, I was in the press van driving back down to the to the main press center after from the venue. And um, and this is a famous like the, the Il Choco climb is a very famous climb in in road cycling. It's been a uh, it's been like the scene of, of many great battles in, in the biggest Italian races, the Giro d'Italia, for example. Um, and so we were, we were descending this, it's a steep mountain road with lots of switchback turns on it. And we were descending this road and Tomac comes shooting past us on this bike. And, um, and then coming around we're entering we're just you know like i don't know uh, 30 meters or so from a from a switchback corner and um and a vehicle suddenly comes around the switchback coming towards us and there wasn't really enough room for tomac to get out of the way of this vehicle and you know things were happening so quickly he was going fast the vehicle coming up the hill wasn't going particularly slowly and I, I was sitting in the front seat of the press van, and I thought, "Oh my God, I'm going to see the accident that ends Tomac's career. This is terrible." And I just had a, you know, I just had that horrible feeling in my stomach when you know you're about to see a, just a horrible disaster. Right. And what Tomac did was was just it'll live in my mind forever. Um, he didn't, like, he didn't even tense up. Like you could just—I was watching him. As I was watching his shoulders and everything, he was just calm. And he got his. But he was traveling at—he was traveling at like I don't know, forty kilometers per hour or something like that. And he immediately put his bike into a fully sideways slide, so his bicycle was perpendicular to the direction of the road. So he had both wheels, front and rear wheels, sliding on the, on asphalt, and and he let the bike slide like this for for a few meters. And then he just adjusted the balance slightly and so the bike stopped sliding and it shot forward across the road. So he gets back into his lane and then he gets the, then he, then he corrects the position um, and just continues on down the road like nothing happened. And, um, and at that point I thought, okay, so I, you know, now I really understand what all the fuss is about. I really, you know, I've got no idea how he could do that. And, I'm sure no other cyclist, you know, may, well, you know, some other cyclists could do that, but hardly any. It was just, it was just an amazing thing. Um, it was a feat that, um, that I really thought was quite impossible, and uh, just, just fantastic. So yeah, so Tomac was, was the legitimate, um, you know, deserved, um, you know, sort of early star. Another one, like really big name as well, was was the, was young female downhill and missy jovi you know she was um she was such a huge personality and you know tremendous talent um and you know i think that she she really she did a huge amount to influence um the image of mountain biking you know which was like it was a 
um, it reminded me a little bit of, of like of the post-punk image where people were looking at a really edgy look, but were also very conscious of their of their style and their appearance. It was a it was a it was a manicured look, like a manicured wild look. Um, she always used to. She had this piranha fish. She had a dried piranha fish, which she hung right. around hanging around the neck. neck. Yeah. Do you have any preference between cross country and downhill? I mean, um, personal personal preference. Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I do. I like they're 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 totally different sports. Um, and you know, cross country cross country is probably more pain than anything else that anybody's ever experienced. Um, and downhill is, you know, as much fun, if not more than anything else than anybody's experienced. I, which is not to say that downhill is, that cross country is not fun and downhill is not painful. Um, but yeah, no, no, I think, I think, yeah, I, re I remember quite some people go walking in crutches from downhill. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's no, yeah, no, it's, it's, I definitely saw a lot more, um, horrible accidents in, in downhill racing, But the kind of pain I was talking about in particular there was was like the pain of a successful run where you don't crash. Um, like you're working your body right. so hard, but, but your muscles are screaming at you to stop. Like your arm muscles, your legs, you know, it's, it's like the downhill is a very, um, it's a very, very physical sport. It's not just bike handling skill, you know, like to be a successful downhill racer, you need to be really, really fit and really, really strong um, as well as really sort of acrobatic and agile but no it's you know like for me um so I, i i picked up something from from the great british racer tim gould well, way back when like in you know in like in back in the 1980s because he'd come from a cyclocross and road racing background and you know and i asked him you know what he thought about there's a lot of prejudice back then um in road racing particularly about mountain biking and i asked him you know what he thought about all that and he said oh, i don't know he said he said look as long as you've got two wheels and a chain and it's human powered it's all, it's all good by me and you know and that's sort of the way that i feel about cycling as well you know i've done track racing myself and road racing i've done bike touring i've done mountain biking and cross country and downhill and it's you know well I'm, that's and it's the great thing about cycling is that is that it offers so many so many possibilities and opportunities um, to people to find things about themselves and to have a good time in life and just have a really satisfying experience, um, you know, and, and almost no matter what your culture is. And so, you know, the, the racing played a, a big part uh, those those first 10 years and you played a big part in, in bringing that structure and organizing it and, and bringing the stories. And But then, you know, you you also made a big impact in, into events, you know, Can you share some of like your your start and your your work at at, at Sea Otter, for example? Um, so I I didn't get involved in Sea Otter until until that event was already really big and really established. Um, um, okay. I got involved in Sea Otter and in, in I started working on that I think in 1999. Um, and um, you know, and I. Uh, so i i have my sort of like 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 my media management package that i bring to events which is a way of structuring um the media operations 
um, and also the the outbound communications. Um, and so that's something that I think that I was able to I was able to um, you know to add something small to you know to a huge event like like Seattle. Um But that was you know I really um, Seattle was something that I that I considered to be um, a great learning experience. The, the main um, the main creative force in Seattle that was organized by by really two people, um, Frank Johannan and Rick Sutton. And Frank was the um, like he was the the administrative talent in that organization, if you like. Um, and um, and Rick was the was the creative director. And Rick would um, you know he was uh, he would make sure that the event the event was fresh and fun um, every year, and so that kept people coming back. And that's that's what drove Seattle really to be the biggest cycling event in the world. Um, not in terms of participants, you know, there are bigger there are bigger cycling events, you know, like in South Africa, the Cape Epic. I think I think it's the Cape. I don't know. I, I can't remember now, but. They, you know, like they get thirty thousand people showing up there, and there's a ride in Montreal right. where they have you know thirty thousand people show up, and uh, probably some some really huge events. Roc de Jour was a is a huge um, cycling festival in the south of France that we that we know about, and you know, and so and Seattle was. So, so coming back to the point of, of learning, you said you learned a lot, but what was the learning in, in, at Seattle for you then? Well, that's, yeah, well, that was the thing. You see, um, Rick was Rick was always doing new things to build the event um and keep and keep people coming back and so um uh i think i think that um do you give an example for like what what did you do new it's hard to say it's 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 yeah yeah i'm trying yeah i'm trying to think of an example i can't really i'm not really thinking of any one in particular because there were so many um you know it's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of like the thousand the thousand percent formula for for business management where you know where you aim to be you aim to be better not like you aim to be not a thousand percent better in any one way but one percent better in a thousand different ways and that's the way that i felt about you know about seata it did so many there was so many details um you know to address to make things just a little bit better in different ways of course like you know of course the big way was and that that event was just like it was it was described in mountain bike action magazine as the meeting of the tribe the gathering of the tribes um you know every kind of cycling could meet there and and have a have an amazing great weekend and maybe that's something for for those who i mean seattle's around for a long time and but to your point you know the the freshness the mix but the tribes definitely is like the, an event where you had mountain bike road cycling And then in the disciplines, right? From four cross trials, kids races. Um, I mean, I remember like the, there's an agenda you could. Yeah, and you had you had a, you had a, a criterium. You had a criterium race on the road. You had a, you had a stage race. You had a circuit race. It was, um, yeah, every you know, it just just everything, and um, you know that made it impossible, man. And that was the hardest event in the world to work on everybody who um I, seriously that was and i've done no other event no other cycling event that comes even close to the seata for for being a difficult event to 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 organize and you know like i'm my i did i, I worked at the olympics 
in Sydney in 2000. And that was so easy compared to Sea Otter. It was kind of like a holiday. <laughs> so, so, so how was that holiday looking for you? What did you do there? Where? In Sydney. In Sydney. Um, I, was, I was just um, – so I did some work leading up to the Sydney Olympics, which was um, – I did some committee work with the with the International Olympic Committee. Um, they were called they were all, they were reorganizing their online results and information service, and so I, I sat on those committees and contributed to that to that conversation um, over the span of of um, about two and a half years um, leading up to the Sydney Olympics. And then at the Sydney Olympics, I, I worked as a as a uh, it was like a it was like a press liaison officer. Um, in the triathlon and and the mountain bike and um, you know that was inter- that was an interesting experience. It was the first year that that triathlon had been included in the Olympics, and um, there was this sense that that like the different sports have their own. Each sport has its own media team, its own like PR uh, company working for it. You know, which is a group of uh, of there's paid staff such as myself, and then also some volunteers. Um, and everybody's got some, you know, some experience. Like there aren't any amateurs working. All the volunteers are pretty experienced volunteers. And so there's some competition between the different sports to gain publicity for their for their sport. Like right. things like track and field athletics don't have to try, you know, because like the media, you know, they're, they're the stars of the show. But like new sports like triathlon, you know, like you're sort of trying to nudge your way in there. And um, so we found this really great opportunity some some naval divers from the from the the, the Australian Navy, um, like they had a they had a base quite close to, uh, to to the Sydney Harbour where the triathlon was taking place, and the naval divers wanted to get involved, and so they approached the race director and said, "Look, we've got this we've got this shark pod equipment. Like, could we swim along with the triathletes, like wearing our shark pods? You know, and what's a shark pod anyway? And so." A shark pod is something that you wear on your back. It's about it's a bit smaller than a football, and uh, and it emits this this these electromagnetic waves, and these waves, um, these waves they, uh, they 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 mess up the navigation equipment of sharks, and so the sharks just swim away, and so it's a shark deterrent. And I asked one of the I asked one of the divers, hey, you know, what's it? So what does it feel like? when you're wearing one of these shark pods, it's putting out this strong, you know, this strong magnetic current. And, and he said, well, he said, it's a bit like, you know, if you have fillings in your mouth and you chew on tin foil, <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so I don't think I'll be wearing a shark pod myself, but anyway, so, so, so was there really a danger of sharks uh, for the swimmers? Right. That's the question. That's the question <laughs> because I saw, yeah. So I, I, you know, I said, you know, I, I, we had a meeting with the, with the race director of the triathlon, and he said, "Yeah, you know, let's do this. You know, it's a great opportunity for us, and you know, we can we can promote this, right?" And I said, "Hell yeah!" And um, you know, so so the first thing though, yeah, is to call uh, call the Sydney Harbour Authority and talk to them about sharks, and and they said, "Well, here's the thing, yeah." He said, "It's September." And we do have sharks in the Sydney Harbour in September, but they aren't any of the they aren't any of the any of the types of shark that you know that ever attack humans. And 
So, you know, so that's okay, you know. We'll still, no job we'll for still, the Marine guys, huh? We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll still go along with the story, though. Like, you know, we're still going to kind of go ahead and do this. And so we put out the, we put out the press release. And so here's, here's the situation in the week before the Olympics. Every, there's a huge amount of expectation. Um, you know, it's like in the, in the host city, it's like somebody's put ecstasy in the water for everybody. It's just full of love and happiness and enjoyment. And, and then all the, like all the media organizations are showing up, the world's biggest, you know, TV stations and so on, like BBC World, Deutsche Welt, the, like, you know, the Japanese are all there and like NBC is there, ESPN, like, you know, everybody's there and they're all getting their equipment and things set up and and checking and and organized. And they're looking for, they're looking for pregame stories something that they can kind of sink their teeth into and, you know, and start to get their media, their, their, their audiences warmed up and tuned into the Olympics. And, um, yeah, so, so I put out this press release about, and, um, about the, about the risk of shark attack in the triathlon. That was what the press release was titled risk of shark attack in triathlon event. And everybody showed up to this press conference just everybody. It was like, you know, like we had, there was standing room only. It was, we were surprised. And, um, you know, and we were upfront about it. We, you know, we said, we said, okay, look, you know, here's the deal. There isn't really a likelihood that anyone's, even without these naval divers, that anybody would get bitten by a shark. But the journalists, they all said, hey, you know, no big deal. This is still, you know, this is a great story. We you know we're, we're running with it. And so, and so the risk of shark attack in the triathlon became the number one pre-games Olympic story, like um, like sport related. Like there were two, there were two bigger stories. One of them was that um, was that the the economic impact of the Olympics to Australia. That was the number one story. And then the number two story was that the president of the IOC would not be showing up to the opening ceremony because his wife had just passed away. And then the number three story. Risk of shark attack in triathlon. <laughs> <It was> the... <laughs> so you guys abused the, the poor sharks to get something. Else. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, there's there's some family interest as well because my 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 nephew runs a, a dive company in 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 Australia, which goes out looking for uh, looking for ah, groups of sharks. <laughs> so much for compliance, huh? <laughs> that was yeah that was that was all before he set up that company anyway yeah so, yeah so that was that was a, what i did in sydney olympics i was working in a mountain bike as well which was which was a um you know it was that was a really interesting time in in mountain bike course development what, what made it interesting it was it was a transitional period um because you had um it was a transition from from what's referred to as found courses to what's referred to as made courses okay and and so um like glenn jacobs was was a, a famous course designer um from Cairns, yes. and he was one of the people who really pushed this who really pushed this along is that you know is that you don't go just with the natural terrain um you know you sort of like you base it on the natural terrain but then you then you work it um you know, in different ways to make it more interesting, entertaining, fun for the riders, exciting for the spectators. And he was, he was, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the pioneers in that, um, 
you know, yes. certainly not the only person, but but he really played an active role. And then, you know, and now that's been that's been um, that concept has been taken. Gary Fisher was telling me recently um, that that Red Bull now, um, like they actually calculate when they're making their jumps and so on, they actually calculate in the wheel size and of of the bike in 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 sort of figuring out the exact shape of the uh, sculpture of the of the of the obstacle um and there's a lot of i think there's a lot of sense in doing that it makes it um it makes the course a lot safer a lot more predictable for the riders um you know so you still get um you still get the spectacle of the athlete right. flying you know hurtling through the air hurtling down the hill hitting a bump and just popping way in the air but for the athlete, it's a lot more predictable and, and thus safer. So, you know, hopefully we see fewer of the really horrible, scary accidents, you know, that, that we've seen in the past. Um, and, you know, which is which is not to, it's not it's not to sort of denigrate anything that was done in the past. It's just a it's a necessary part of of any sports development. You know, we can see this very very strongly, for example, in in Formula One motor racing. Um, you know where where the um, the courses and the vehicles have over the span of, of of decades have been made much safer. So there's you know like the risk right. to the competitors is less. In mountain biking, that's been similar things been done, but on a very condensed uh, timeline. And so and so the, this this process uh, just to refresh my memory, so that that started around 2000 to to change from natural courses to to handmade man-made courses well that's where we i think that's where this, i think the sydney olympic course was um you know was the first manifestation of a course that had been extensively made um you know and glenn was talking about that way you know sort of like way back he, he was he was the course director for the 1996 world championship in cairns Right. And Glenn was talking about that back then. I remember he and I had conversations back then around, you know, about about course design that could be um, more interesting to spectators. You know, the thing about mount, the thing about being a spectator at a mountain bike race is, is like like you stand on you stand at one point on the course and you see the riders pass you every half hour. And then right. you know, like like for the intervening twenty five minutes, you're just standing there twiddling your thumbs or you know, something like that. So, you know, conversation, one of the conversations I had with him was not a new idea by any means. I'm Mike Closer, um, you know, one of the pioneer um, international athletes, you know, had been talking about the clover leaf design way back in, in the 1980s, um, you know, where you have the, you have the athletes coming through the start finish area like four times in every lap. Um, you know, so right. the gap between seeing them is only is only ten minutes, which um, you know, which can be pretty confusing. Um, <laughs> you know, but if you think about how how the race spreads out, you know, so like you might be right. finish, like you know, the who's guy coming first, through right. the finish. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, who's leading this race? Yeah, is it you know, is it the guy I'm seeing now, or is it the guy I'm seeing five minutes later or fifteen minutes later? Yeah. Which which is is the key thing for for TV, right? I mean, they need to yeah. really see who's the leader and who's who's at the end, so that they can tell a, a story. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but you know, I think that they've, um, you know, if you look at the way that that and Red Bull has turned this into a science, and um, you know, not not only the not only the, uh, the 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 contours of the terrain, the, the terrain sculpture, um, yeah, but also the media management. Um, you know, I think that they do a 
they do a really fantastic job of you know presenting it um for me the for me and i can never really get passionate about that um Why you know, is that? For me, the thing that um you know and here's where i here's where someone like mike kluger and i kind of our, our opinions diverge um going back a long way into the early 1990s, there was a famous race, World, uh, it was a Grunding Challenge race, I think, in, in Aviemore in Scotland. And you're up in the Scottish Highlands here, really rugged country. And, um, and the organizer put in a, it wasn't a creek crossing, it was a river crossing. <laughs> and so like you're going almost waist deep across this river with your bike on your back and, and it's freezing cold water. And, um, you know, and Mike was like, you know, like Mike, who was just a, a, a really serious professional bike racer, was appalled by this because he said, your legs get so cold, you can cramp, you can do a lot of muscle damage. It's just not a good thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I think, you know, all of his points are right. But what I, what I love was the uncertainty of, the uncertainty of that and the, of, of what, and for me, that's, that's kind of, like what mountain biking was and what I really loved about it is that it's a kind of bike racing where you put yourself into, into a, like into nature, which can be quite hostile and, and how you, you know, how you manage your bike and your body through this sort of like hostile environment and you survive it and you get to the finish in one piece. Um, and then if you're really good, you get to the finish in one piece and ahead of everybody else. And that was the thing I think that that you know sort of that was my really deep down um, you know attraction to mountain bike racing, which which may have come from my from my experience in uh, in my late teens and early twenties when I I did a lot of, um, sort of like ski mountaineering in a you know in a really precarious environment. Um, so that that's basically when worlds collide: your survival of the fittest and and Mike's kind of more. Uh the 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 racehorse yeah 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 exactly uh, yeah that's um i think that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good way of putting it and it's you know it's just it's just two different views on on what mountain biking is and i think you know i think what red bull does is that they contrive to they contrive to sort of like make it a make it make it look a bit like the form like about my passion but in reality it's more like mike's approach and you know I think that they, they've got a very, very, they've got a very marketable product. You know, right. everyone's going to love that. It's going to look really good. And we all have to be really thankful in these times, especially in Corona, like that racing is coming into your home, right? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah well, that's, that's the kind of thing that keeps people sane. You know, it's, it's that important. <laughs> well, I mean, there's still, without Corona, a lot of spectators at the same time the the popularity of, of mountain biking you know well yeah that's yeah that's that's a you know that was because that was always the that was always the big issue back in back in the 1990s is um you know and how do we get enough spectators to this sport how do we you know to make it really to make it um financially feasible right. because you know you can't charge well some some venues did charge people an entry fee um you know that that can be done, and and Sydney Olympics was a was a you know perfect example of that, and the the World Championships um, in you know I th 
I think in some, in some world championships, they had fenced areas where people paid to get in. I can't, I, I would have to research that in, I'm, I'm working on a, on a book on the, uh, the, the development of, of international mountain bike sport. And, uh, that's something actually that I'll need to I'll need to research more thoroughly. There are people in in a couple of um, event venues who who may have been doing that, and I seem to remember in Hoofalies maybe they tried doing that, um, maybe in Vale. Um, but you know, generally speaking, it's considered that you can't charge you can't charge spectators an entry fee for a mountain bike event because it's too difficult to fence off a large enough area. Um, you know, and so where is the sport? Well, the, the last the last worlds in I was at in in Lenzerheide in two thousand eighteen. That that that's where you had to pay and get a ticket. You know, with like a arm wrist. Okay, yeah. So so they're doing that now, and that's um, that's a good thing for the sport. I think you know I'm sure it's you know it's great to give it away, but the sport's got to pay something. It's got to pay for itself somehow, and relying in relying entirely on um, you know the great that was. So this is something else about the Grundig series is that is that the sport would never have developed. It would never have developed into something big enough for Red Bull to get hold of, in my opinion, um, without without the Grundig involvement. Um, right. You know, Grundig really. Um, you know, it's, it's a classic. Um, uh, it's it's like it's almost a textbook marketing case. Of of how to how to build a sport, like how to build a sponsorable sport, um, and it took it takes a huge amount of like on a global level, it takes a huge amount of of seeding investment, and um, you know when um, when when Grundig finally ended their sponsorship of the of the World Cup um, in 1997. UCI hired the two biggest sports marketing agencies, um, IMG and ISL, to um, you know to, to find another sponsor, another series sponsor. Right. And both these companies came back to the US to the UCI with a report that they weren't going to find anybody who was paying anywhere near what what Grundig was paying for uh, for the for the sport when it's when it was um, sort of financially worth as a as a sponsorable. Now that's that may be debatable, but um, you know, my, uh, you know, I, I have a, I have a sort of a hypothesis about why that might be the, the case and I need to research that more, but, um, you know, and the, the fact was that, that the following sponsors of the sport weren't paying, weren't contributing nearly as much to it as Grundig was. And that made it hard for the, for the event organizers because the event organizers were then like the event organizers had been receiving a bursary from Grundig um, to help them cover their costs. And that made it much more possible, much easier um, for the event organizers to pay their bills. Like, you know, like I'm not talking about the bills for the race. I'm talking about pay the, paying their rent and putting food on the table at home, um, you know, because it takes so much time to organize one of these events that you can't be doing anything else. So, um, yeah, so when Grundig left, um, you know, it was, it was, we saw a, a big drop in, in, in the, in the quality and standard of, of lots of events just because the organizers, uh, weren't able to afford it anymore. Um, right. and so, yeah, yeah. You know, so going back to the point about, about having a fenced off area and, and paid entry, um, you know, I think it's necessary and, you know, and I think that, um, 
heck, you know, what a great day out. You know, you go and you go and pay twenty dollars or you know whatever the entry fee is, and you get a full day's entertainment. You get to hike in the hills. Um, you know, you're probably going to get an area to ride your bike around in and have a lot of fun. You get to see a big international sporting event where you, you know where you see global stars. And um, to me, that seems like good value for money. I I would happily I would happily pay that. Um, yeah, and to your point, you get really close, right? Where yeah. You know, if you go to a car race or anywhere else, you know, you cannot go to the pits and um, the warm up, and um, so the atmosphere is definitely very vibrant. Yes, it's vibrant. It's more intimate. Yeah, you actually, you know, you actually, you can actually get, you know, get to speak to one of the one of the big stars of the sport, and they'll, you know, generally speaking, because of the of the culture of the sport, they'll also speak to you back. It's um, and it's always been, you know, back in the day, it used to be that you you could even race against them in the early uh, first few years of, of the Grundig series. Um, on Saturday, that there'd be a qualifying event, and Sunday there'd be the final. And so any amateur could enter the qualifying event. So any any guy could get on the, on the start line and race against Sarah Ballantyne or Julie Furtado or, or you know or John Tomac or you know you could actually say, yeah, I raced against them, and. That was a really that was actually, you know, it was difficult to sustain that, and in the end they had to stop it. But boy, it was a, it was so cool when people were doing that, and that brought a lot more people to the events. Um, you know, just 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 that alone was was a huge thing um, that that helped to it helped to build up the sport. And I think that when that stopped, um, you know, there was a noticeable drop off um in the partly the excitement level at events of of the spectators and events in some countries anyway um spain spain exception <laughs> the spanish events were just those spanish cross country events were um like talk about the world's best cycling fans man the spanish are just just incredible fantastic so yeah and um remembering those world cups in uh madrid yeah, Barcelona. Barcelona, Madrid. Yeah, and you just have, you'd have like the you'd have a thousand of you know two thousand people running across, like running between parts of the course, so we could catch the next glimpse of the races coming by. <laughs> and, and to your point, like uh, I think that uh, the the Barcelona course was exactly the opposite of like waiting for for twenty five minutes. You had one one. Uh, small little hill that they were going up uh, from each side three, four times. So you would see him every two minutes, right? Going up and down and up and down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, a, that was a great course. It was a great event. I think that was, that was one of the first world cup events where we saw a really big crowd where oh, I, that, 19, that was 1993, I guess. Uh, yeah, and then, and then, of course, be. there was there was the mountain, there was the world championships in in uh, Metabier in France, where where that that was a pivotal event in the sports development. For what reason? Because members of the members of the IOC showed up to that event to review its prospects for inclusion in the Olympic program, and they were so impressed by. And I don't, I don't know what it was like for you getting into that event, but there were so many people trying to get into the venue that, that all of the roads were jammed up. And, you know, for me, it was really stressful because, you know, we had events starting in 15 minutes and I'm still 
you know quarter i'm still like you know 800 meters away from the from the press office in the you know in the car trying to get into the trying to get my car parked behind us there's the argentine mountain bike team in a bus and they're trying to get to the start line so they can enter the race and you know it was just it was it was really just a hugely it was an overly successful event and um but yeah the ioc members who were there um were just blown away by the number of people and that was you know they just said okay this is an olympic sport you know no problem and boom and it was it was you know very shortly afterwards included in the in the olympic program and again to you to your point uh, you know southern europe like france as spain has been uh uh, huge fan base for for cycling right whether it was uh, it's road or mountain bike you know, oh my god yeah Azure or or anything else but metabier definitely was uh, a magnet yeah 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 metabier was that was that was and france's you know france as a nation has like they embraced france embraced mountain biking really really early on in a way that um you know in a way that that the whole of the usa would would be envious of um, you know, in that, in that so many, um, you know, while like, you know, USA had the Sierra club, which was, you know, a really great organization, but a lot of members of the Sierra club didn't want to give up the trail to mountain bikers and they would actively oppose it. And it was hiking only politically, they would be, they would show up to meetings and they would complain And then, if they saw a mountain bike, like there was a there was a uh, a famous trail made by Charlie Cunningham, one of the mountain bike pioneers, called the New Paradigm Trail, and it was a beautiful trail on the back of Pine Mountain in Marin. And he spent a lot of time making this trail. It was secret, and it was a really really fun trail. It was sustainable. He'd 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 done a lot of buttressing and and put in drainage channels and so on. So if it rained, it wasn't going to cause erosion, and group of people from the sierra club they found this trail and they went out and they spent like a working party spent a full day destroying it and they left trash on the ground um you know france didn't have any of that like france has a had a much more open mind towards mountain biking and it was hey you know the plein air get out and have fun you know it's and so suddenly mountain biking was included in all of these outdoor facilities around france like ski areas but also like and also trails like hiking trails were open to mountain bikes and maybe there was some resistance which i didn't hear about but i do remember um mountain biking gets gets the green and i was living in england at the time where we were having some of the same problems that the americans were having with uh with in trail england, yeah in england you call them ramblers and you know i even got uh like i'd be i got pushed off my bike um you know, on one occasion by some, by some rambler guy who just didn't like me being there. Um, and, um, you know, it was a physical assault and, um, but France didn't, you know, they didn't seem to have that. And, you know, and for that reason, um, you know, the mountain biking developed in France at a very, at a very rapid rate, uh, just because, uh, you know, the trails there, the facilities, the opportunities for mountain biking were so, were so splendid. Um, Yeah. And so easily accessible to so many people, and it has never stopped, right? No, no, that's right. Yeah, well, you know, on any country in the world, it's hard to imagine any country in the world loving loving cycling more than France. I mean, you might say Italy, um, but um, 
And Spain, you know, Spain a different way. Man, I remember I was uh, after on a road bike. I was uh, this is maybe the year after uh, Pedro Delgado won the Tour de France. I was riding. I was vacationing in in Barcelona, and I was riding my bike up the up the Montjuic climb, and um, and everybody who passed was clapping. Everybody I rode past who was a pedestrian. They were kind of clapping me, and as I was wearing like roadie roadie clothing at the time so I looked like a bike race they were all clapping and cheering and saying hey hey Delgado <laughs> you know you never get that in England at the time <laughs> people are people are trying you know people are telling you to go away <laughs> one topic I want to come back is uh, you know um, with your your broad experience in journalism from the past and today and you know, I you know how has journalism changed from your view you know like um, Today, with all the influencers, and in the past, like you know, restricted. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's um, that's a really interesting thing to me. Yeah, like so I was saying, I was telling you earlier that you know, like that there, back then there was no real, there was no real, like there was no real internet back in the late nineteen nineties. It was you know, it was something for the for the scientific community, um, and so everybody got all of their information from from the magazines and newspapers and, um. And so, and and so, I'll give you a couple of examples of how of how that could be, um, what what kind of influence that could have. Is there were two cases where, in um, I don't know, 1994 or so, um, I wrote an article um, for Cycle Sport magazine, which had a U.S. Um, distribution. It was a U.K. based magazine with a with a U.S. base uh, as well, um, and. I wrote an article about about Pegoretti, the Italian frame builder, and yes. um, so yeah, some journalists had put me onto Pegoretti, um, you know, and it was a really cool story. Um, you know, I went to his workshop and got the pictures, and then he made a frame for me, and so I wrote an article, which you know about, about the whole process um, with some pictures of his really really cool workshop. And he was making frame at that time. He was he was making. Uh, the frames for the for the Pinarello race, uh, for, like, for like for, rather for Pinarello for all of the teams that Pinarello sponsored, and um, you know, so I put that in the story, and um, and then you know, I did. It, it wasn't actually until um, you know, sometime later, I you know, I understood that some years later, maybe a decade or so later, I understood that Pegoretti was was quite a big uh, custom frame brand in in the u.s like maybe one of the largest italian custom brands you could buy in the in the usa and uh, it wasn't until quite recently that i discovered that 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 had become so because of that story i'd written so um you know so like the uh one of the an italian uh bicycle products importer um saw that story in 1994 and thought okay so we can you know we can use this to to sell pegoretti bikes in the US and did so. And, you know, and, and Pegoretti got a huge amount of his business from, you know, from the USA. Um, you know, people like Robin Williams, um, you know, learned about him. I don't know, you know, sort of. So the actor, Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The actor, Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, you know, who, who, you know, just had a large number of, of bikes from Pegoretti um, in the end. So, yeah. So, um, You know, so there was that was that was the power of one story in one magazine, and then another another example. I wrote an article um, 
about um, what what um, Tim Maloney, the, the marketing guy, Tim Maloney had done something with. He'd created a um, like a global team um, it, from with when he was working with Diamondback. He'd created this global mountain bike team uh, by persuading the um, the national importers in a different several different countries to you know to contribute to the cost of the team and the, you know the, the the proposition he gave them was you know we, we can either make the we can either make the bikes a little bit cheaper or else or else you can have a like a global team to promote your brand and they all they all opted for that on the strength of that story uh in which appeared in Velo News uh Mike Sinyard at Specialized decided he wanted to hire Tim Maloney um so you know Tim Maloney got a job at Specialized which um you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you spoke. I, th- I understand that you've spoken to Tim, and I don't know if he spoke about the job at Specialized or not. But. Yeah, we, we talked about it, but not, not the way he he got this. But he, he was very, very in detail on uh, on building that uh, global Diamondback racing. Yeah, yeah, and he did a you know he he did a great job with that. I thought I was I was yes. really impressed with his approach. Um, you know, it was just smart thinking and. But so, but going back to the influence of a of a journalist now. So, what I was as an influencer, um, as an influencer, I was you know I was I was kind of influencing, I was promoting other people. So, okay, you know, like Paul Skilbeck, journalist, was not particularly a brand, you know. But what I you know I I created I I I hadn't I didn't create I contributed to. Um, uh, you know, to, to the to the success of of Pegaretti as a as a custom frame builder in the USA, and you know, and I influenced Mike Sinyard to you know to be interested in in Tim Maloney. But I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't getting anything personally out of that. Now we fast forward now to 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 the days of social media, and like the social media influencer, they focus all their focus is on themselves. And so people right. like the influencer is branding themselves with all of the like the direct um, economic advantage goes on to themselves. So that's that's one. It's one really significant shift in the role of the influencer. Um, you know, in in media, it's like a media content creator as an influencer. There are various types of influencer, obviously. Um, you know, and. and so that's one thing, you know. But um, the other thing is that is that the amount of, um, like the amount of ambient noise in the media now is almost deafening. You know, way back, like when we when we relied on magazines and newspapers to get the to get the word out. Um, you know, like there was a really significant barrier to mass communication. Like you, you know, you had to, unless you wanted to publish your own magazine, you had to convince um, an editor. That you were that you were reliable and the quality of your work was good enough, you know, and you were honest and and all of those kind of things. There were several hurdles that you had to cross over before, um, you know, before you became accepted as a journalist. And um, that's just not the case now. Anybody can jump into it, and as a result of that, everybody's jumping in. And so, like I said, it's like there's just a heck of a lot of noise. Um, and uh, yeah, just a very, very different media landscape now. Um, you know, totally different. That's for sure. I mean, to your point, like now that in the past, uh, the Grundig Times uh, were like twenty top global magazines, right? You had to wait for. Yeah. 
and today it's uh, it's probably like times ten thousand, right? You got like two hundred thousand channels. Well, yeah, and the other and the other thing is that the is that the print publication is almost dead. You know, it's and right. and and with that, a lot of the um, you know, yes, yeah, so most of those publications that we were working for, you and I were working for back then, no longer exist. Um, you know, and Velo News hardly exists. I remember. And, well, do you remember how important Velo News was? It was really, you know, like it called itself the Journal of Competitive Cycling. And if you wanted to understand what was going on in, you know, in, on the international race scene, you really had to read Velo News. And that's, you know, and Velo News as a, you know, as a print pub, the print publication's gone. You know, it's. Yeah. It, I think it may have. I think they may have revived it recently, but you know, for, it just disappeared with uh, with with the flood of, of, uh, you know, of, of, of cycling internet stories, uh, and, and, and websites. Yeah, definitely got replaced, you know, like many other things before and after. But I think what's, hype. yeah, it did. But I, I think what's happening, what we're seeing happening now though, is, is like a reconsolidation, um, of, you know, of, of information sources simply because it's, um, you know, we're coming up against the same original problems, which were how do we pay for this? Because you know, you can't keep on you can't keep on blogging um, or whatever day after day um, without getting paid. You know, you need to you need to make some, right. some money from it. And in the early nineties, um, you know, and there was there was kind of crazy money in the internet. People just threw money at it, and it was wasted um, on. You know, and, and companies went like you had the huge. We had the huge bust in 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 um, 1999, 2000. Um, you know, and since then it's become a little bit more. It's become increasingly more rational. Um, you know, and and so yeah, so we're, you know, it's now like, on Velo News, for example, they've hung in there, they've stuck in, they've kept their website going. Um, you know, and now they're now they're talking about, or maybe you already have relaunched a, a paper publication. Um, Speaking about paper, like, do you still yeah. read paper magazines? Do you have paper magazines at home? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's it's still actually my um, it's my preferred medium. Um, it's nice. Like I, it's not because you know it's a different experience. Um, it's. You know, it's a more focused, involved experience. You get more. I find I get more into the story. It's easier on the eyes uh, to look at a, a look at a page of, of of newsprint than it is to you know to spend you know time looking at a computer screen. You need to wear special glasses. Um, you know, if you want to spend a lot of time looking at a computer screen, for example. Um, you know, and so yeah. So, and I don't know if that's. Um, and I, I'm not saying I, I don't spend more time um you know sort of reading print articles um i probably spend more time reading reading articles online but i spend a lot less time uh reading any any online article than than i do a uh, print article paul thank you so much for these incredible inside stories from the past it's been really exciting listening to you and uh i know there's still many more adventures of yours and experiences that uh we should and will share. We'll keep that for another episode. For now, thanks again. You're welcome, Dirk, and thank you for having me. We'll continue this. Okay, I'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. The courage and passion Paul has been investing in his dream to make mountain bike racing more popular 
is very impressive and entertaining. Now it's your turn. This podcast is about interaction. So please share your questions and feedback with us either by mail, info at the minus brand minus explorer.com or leave an online review. If you think Paul's walk through MTB history is interesting for others, thank you for sharing. You find more episodes under the Brand Explorer webpage. Thank you for your time and interest. Take care. Mm -hmm.